You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 112. There is no reason why challenging themes and engaging stories have to be mutually exclusive. In fact, each can fuel the other. Edward Zwick. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Well, guys, this year I have been humbled with amazing guests after amazing guests on this show. And this episode is no exception. We have on the show the legendary Oscar-winning filmmaker, Edward Zwick. Now, Edward has directed and written some of the most influential films of the past two decades, starting with About Last Night, Glory, Courage Under Fire, Legends of the Fall, The Siege, Last Samurai, Blood Diamond, Defiance, Jack Reacher, and many, many more. He is also the producer of the Oscar-winning best picture, Shakespeare in Love. He's also the creator and executive producers of shows like Nashville, 30-something, and many more. I mean, the list goes on and on. I was humbled to sit down with Edward and discuss his career, his creative process when he's writing and directing, how he directs legendary movie stars like Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio, Morgan Freeman, and Denzel Washington, just to name a few. I was absolutely in awe of, of Edward while we sat down and discussed his, his craft and the way he did it. It was awe-inspiring to say the least talking to Edward. It was like sitting down in a master class of cinema. So I cannot wait to share this episode with you. So without any further ado, please enjoy my eye-opening conversation with Edward Zwick. I'd like to welcome to the show Edward Zwick. Thank you so much. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing as well as can be expected uh, given the circumstances of all of our lives. <laughs> Amen, my friend. Amen. It is a weird and wacky world that we live in uh, nowadays. And uh, I mean, we've been locked up for a while now. Uh, and I'm sure for directors, uh, even it's it, it, like you're, Projects on hold. Can we shoot? Yeah. Can we not shoot? What's yeah. going on? There's, there's, of course, all of that. I mean, I am also um, a writer, so social distancing and uh, 
that kind of uh, sheltering in place is too familiar to those of us that, that have to write. So I'm doing a bit of that. Yes, uh, I'm a writer and I've been in post for 25 years, so I completely understand where you, right. you come yeah. from. So before we get started, how did you uh, get into the business? Oh, man, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a tale. Um, I began you know, working in the theater as a kid. Uh, uh, I even began directing theater when I was about 15 uh, and on through. Uh, I went uh, abroad to uh, France on a fellowship after college, and the fellowship was to work with experimental theater companies, uh, Peter Brook and uh, Ariane Nushkin. But the truth is, the whole time I had, uh, you know, had a desperate love affair with movies. But it was a, it was a, you know, a passionate uh, fan and a viewer. Uh, I didn't really know much about the technology. I'd never really learned exposure. I, I took stills, but I had, you know, I couldn't thread a bolex or or work a viola. And so I, I, I just didn't. I thought there was somehow, uh, you know, forsworn because I'd spent all my time in the theater, but. Through an odd set of circumstances, very odd. Um, I had worked for a magazine when I was in college called The New Republic. And uh, while there, I had had a correspondence with um, Woody Allen because he was writing for The New Yorker at the time, those mm -hmm. occasional pieces. Mm -hmm. And we uh, had asked him if he wanted to give us some pieces as well. And he said yes. And so he was briefly published in The New Republic that year that I was there. So when I was in Paris, I had heard he was shooting there. I was walking down the street in Saint-Germain-de-Pre, and I saw him walking toward me. And I did something that I would never dare do now, particularly knowing you know, how shy he really uh, was and is. And I just went up and introduced myself. And I said that he and I had corresponded. And I said I was around, and I was on fellowship money and would it be okay if I could just come by the set sometime and see what he was up to? He said, sure. But actually what he said was call me at the Georges Saint. And I thought, oh, well, he's blowing me off, you know, which is fine. And I called him. He said, oh no, come on by. And I did. It turned out that really he was very lonely at the time. He uh, was one of the few people, one of the few Americans there. Uh, and I, I spoke English but I also spoke French. And within a very short time, he offered me a job to work on the movie as a PA slash assistant, wow. which I did. Right. And, and the, he actually was very kind. He took me to, to Hungary with them. It was a movie called Love and Death. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then uh, that was really it, um, except that he was exceedingly generous. He just suffered my ridiculous questions. Uh, and let me just observe. Um, I was despised by the French crew because there I was talking to the director, which is absolutely forbidden in any kind of hierarchical thing. And and yet he was quite willing to 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 you know indulge me. And and so that I had um, done something actually in in college that Joe Papp had seen, and I had a sort of half-assed. Uh, opportunity to go back and 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 maybe work at the public theater when I got back to the United States after this year. But I decided instead that I was going to do it like so many people before me, that I was going to sort of reinvent myself um, uh, in, in the movies. And I applied to the American Film Institute. 
Oh, wow. From, uh, from France. And it was a very early time there. It was not a, a it was a very small, um, uh, not very uh, known uh, circumstance there. And I sent them reviews of plays I'd done. I'd sent them some things I'd written. I sent them some songs I'd written. And for some reason, I got in. And I came to uh, Los Angeles in 1976, I think, never having been to California, <laughs> um, not knowing anybody. Uh, I arrived, it was, you know, about 180 degrees and there the, the hills were on fire. And <laughs> Nothing much has changed. <laughs> and I thought that I'd made a terrible mistake having left this this apartment that I'd been subletting in Paris and 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 and, and uh, went to the American Fil Film Institute, did very, very badly my first year, uh, would go home and just cry myself to sleep face down on the mattress every night. But somehow, by the end of the first year there, I had somehow managed to uh, slip by uh, and was one of the people asked to come back the second year and make a short film, which I did and uh, did no good for me whatsoever. By, I, you know, was that was that was that Timothy and the Angel? Yes, it was. It, it won a, a prize at a Chicago film festival, and it meant nothing except you know some you know little plaque that I still have. Mm -hmm. And um, but the, I had two years of the kind of demythification that you need when you first come here, when you understand what people mean when they say these things to you, and and that whole nomenclature of Hollywood and development and, you know, those horrible critical phrases that, that, that uh, development executives know and mm -hmm. you have learned the translation. And, and uh, probably the most important thing that happened is that Marshall Herskovitz and I met. Um, he was there also as a director and we became friends. And more than that, I think after we left film school, because there is no you know, continuing education. I think we remained each other's friends, but also became each other's teachers in a way. Mm. And when finally we began to get some kind of work and it was horrible. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, the other would be willing to tell the other person it was horrible. And we would try to analyze why. And that relationship began and continued uh, day in, in uh, both and informal ways. Uh, at the same time, I met a guy there named Steve Rosenblum who cut my student film, who'd never cut anything before. So we figured out that um, Moviola and, and then a steam deck. And, mm -hmm. and, and he has cut everything I've done since, as well as having several Oscar nominations. And, and uh, I don't know. It, uh, it it was just that sort of um oh, that that cauldron that that very searing moment where you uh actually form certain relationships with people who uh, are actually willing to tell you when you're full of shit mm -hmm. and and you admit your aspirations to each other and uh that's sort of how it began now with um when you did your your, either your first short film or even when you applied to, to or, or went to uh, L.A. for the first time, what was mm -hmm. the biggest fear you had to overcome? Because a lot of a lot of people listening 
might have not even taken that first step to walk towards the path of following something that they're passionate about and they have something blocking them. What was that? Was there a fear or did you just go gun ho? Well, well, I mean, to, to be truly, really honest, my father had gone bankrupt when I was in college mm-hmm. and I had applied and had been accepted to law school. Oh, wow. So ironically, when you get accepted, I don't know if it's still true now, but in those days when you got accepted to law school, uh, they and, and I had gotten this fellowship. They they gave me a um, uh, what, what's it called? There was um the uh, the possibility of of coming back uh, the year after, or, or or they were able to attenuate my acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so I had that um thing, that piece of paper. And my greatest fear is that I would have to go back and go to law school because oh. I just. I really had, had 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 no wish to do it. I applied because I was scared, and 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 I was a middle class kid who thought I had to somehow have something to fall back on. Right. And so I guess, you know, um, yeah, that continued for several years because while I was starving and mooching off my girlfriend, who was willing to, you know, let me stay in her this little rented house, and and I was. Even if for years after that, when I was a script reader and the various things that I did to try to make money, those people who were graduating and clerking for Supreme Court justices and going to work for white shoe law firms and making a shitload of money and, and really advancing in the world. And I um, was not as none of us do right away. And so there was a, you know, a certain period of time, I would say the two years of film school and maybe two or three years thereafter where I was um, struggling. As as you would, and and for people in their st- listening today, when you were trying to become a filmmaker, it was not the cool thing to do. Nobody really even knew no. what a film director no. did. Really, no, sort of true. I mean, I mean, look, I went to, I went to an Ivy League school, and particularly there. I mean, the the couple years before me, um, the guy uh, I went to Harvard, and the guys from the Lampoon had come out, and you know, Doug Kinney and 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 those guys. Um, they had not yet made movies, but they were finding their way here. I, I seem to remember seeing Animal House like the first year that I actually was there. I don't remember Animal House, what year it was. Was it about 77? Is that a good guess? Yeah it, was around, yeah, it was like mid to late 70s. Yeah, I think in any case, um, it was not a cool, an acceptable thing. There wasn't a mafia of people all from the same school who had come out here and and there had never been film courses in the school that I'd gone to. Uh, and so it was all very, very new. But when I lived in Paris, all I had done was go to the movies. I, I, I probably should have spent a lot of more time, a lot more time, you know, doing the work I was supposed to have done, which is working with experimental theater companies. But the Cinematheque was there. Um, Henri Langlois was still the head of it. You could spend four francs, which was a dollar, and you could see three movies at a at a a six o'clock and an eight o'clock and a 10 o'clock show at the yeah. Cinematheque. And it would be the festival of, of Truffaut or it would be uh, Antonioni or it would be you know, Ozu or Kurosawa and, or in, in American films too. And Paris, which few people know is probably the best revival city in the world. Mm-hmm. So they would have a John Ford Film Festival or they would have a, oh, you know, a Preston Sturges Festival. Oh, amazing. And that's all I would do every day. I would just go to the movies. So, so my point is that that um, I was there and I, I at least had a sense of what I aspired to. I didn't know how to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And I did the work at AFI and I listened. And when all the fancy people would come in and tell me about their experiences, I thought I was paying attention. But then when I would try to go and do the work, it never resembled uh, what Sidney Pollack had been talking about or, or what Roman Polanski was talking about as he talked to the students. And I, I just wasn't getting it. Uh, and I felt um, despairing about that. And frankly, it wasn't for several years of just doing work that was mediocre. And until one day the penny dropped. And I can't really explain exactly why it happened when it happened. Mm-hmm. But something um, was revealed to me about the relationship between what I wanted and what the camera saw, what I wanted to to say and what people said, uh, in, in the actors in their mouths and how stories were told. And 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 really, it happened like Helen Keller at the pump. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. the miracle. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, that moment when when she's got Patty Duke is there and she's pumping and she goes, water. And she goes, oh, water. Oh, and suddenly at that moment, suddenly she can um, understand language. And for me, that was film language. And and from then it was a very a very a fast trajectory. After a very little trajectory, it then began to really um, gather steam. But you struggled for years until that moment happened, and 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 just got yeah. In there. I mean, I mean, yeah, I would say the aggregate was was certainly certainly five good years of struggle. Um, mm-hmm. And by struggle, I also mean self-loathing of getting an opportunity to write something and then seeing it was bad. And even when I got an opportunity to do a television movie, Mm -hmm. finally, it was bad. And then the next one was just as bad. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure that they knew uh, at ABC or even the producers how bad it was. But I knew how bad it was compared to what I was trying to compare myself to. Sure. And I was embarrassed by it. Now, be better. Now there was um I I mean I've been a fan of yours for a long time and with your filmography but I saw you on a DVD of Uh-oh. this this li- this little known amazing acting directing the actors course called N- the Nina Foch course ah. and, and and I saw you there and I, and and of course George Lucas was in there there's like a ton of amazing directors who Nina um really helped and I when I first launched the new film hustle, I was a, probably one of the biggest sellers of her course as oh, really? I sold tons and because I took it. I'm like, no, I got to promote this to, to mm. my audience. And I love that course, but you actually, I took the, the, the video course. You right. actually took her course, right? Yeah. How was that? I mean, there are a few people that mark you. I mean, I was lucky enough to have several good teachers in high school and certainly one or two in college, but she, she just was so radical. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I know a little bit about Brando's life and, and, and Kazan's life and, and, and what, who Stella Adler was mm-hmm. and, and, and what effect she had on people and, um, and, and Sandy Meisner and, and Nina was a student of theirs and she took their gospel and apply and, and then really translated into her own uh, understanding because she too had had a more Hollywood experience. She had been a contract player mm-hmm. for Louis Mayer in the in the forties. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And and she had then been. Uh, she worked with uh, 
George Stevens and William Wyler as did a she, coach. Of, did of she work, yeah, didn't she work with Kubrick and I think Cecil made a mill? I think something. I don't, about, I don't know about DeMille. She used to tell a DeMille story. She had the best stories of anybody. <laughs> um, but she was also unbelievably tough. Yeah. She was unsparing about uh, what the calling was of directing uh, and not just directing the actor, but but storytelling. And, you know, the funny thing, when you have a great teacher, pay attention, you don't always get it right away. Mm -hmm. What happens right. is that, at least for me, a year later or five years later, you'll find yourself in some situation and then something will happen. And then you'll say, oh, that's what she meant. And then a whole reservoir of things that will still have been in you will then be available to you because nothing really leaves if you're paying attention. It's there. Mm -hmm. It can be called upon. And I think for me that I just needed to have some sort of practical application of doing a thing for it to then be somehow internalized. But once I had done it and even done it badly, and I maintain as good a teacher as doing it well, Mm -hmm. um, I was able then to reference what she was talking about and all the things that she talked about in terms of how one elicits a performance from an actor, how one uses behavior, how one really breaks down a script. Uh, it became something that I then took in and applied some of whatever my own experience had then been to try to make it my own. But but she was um she was really formidable and and believed and believed in it as a calling and believed in it as a um you know like a role. priesthood almost like a priesthood yeah, I, was, yeah, I was gonna go there and i thought at least you said the pretentious part about it yes i think that's true <laughs> I no, and I, and she was i mean she was a formidable in the in the dvd or the video course that i saw i could only imagine being in the room with her um, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. It really was. She she was remarkable. Yeah, now she would really she would really take you apart. Uh, she had actually they they created something at AFI called the narrative workshop, mm -hmm. where you would show something that you had shot. We all worked on tape at that time and shot it single camera as if it were film. Wrote, cut it ourselves, and uh, the, the the exercise was like a communist Chinese self criticism session, where you have to show the film to your peers. And you're not allowed to speak. And they just tell you what they've seen. Oh. And you have to sit there and fucking take it. <laughs> you know? And then and then you do some kind of that that repentance thing that you know, the Chinese uh, I am guilty of the sin of pace. I am guilty of the sin of indulgence. <laughs> uh, uh, sort of session. That must have that must have been amazing. Um now you um you you did a movie in the '80s, which was one one of those classic '80s movies, which is about last night with Rob yes. Lowe and Jane Belushi and and Demi and and um, Elizabeth, and it was such a wonderful film. About last night's one of those amazing '80s films, and it's a very small. I mean, not small, but it's a, it's a comedy. Uh, yeah. And then from from a, a controlled, more controlled comedy, you go to glory. Right. How the heck did that convert? Like. Was it an agent? Was it the script? 
what, 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 like what like how did you get that gig because generally speaking you don't go from romantic comedy to epic civil war movie yeah it, it was it was one of those again flukes um i will say that i had obviously studied um american history so i had a very particular interest in it um i had uh, about last night had had the good fortune of doing well mm-hmm. it's a movie that was made inexpensively made a lot of money for the studio so they were predisposed to be interested in what I might be interested in. Mm-hmm. When I said that, you can imagine their response was the same as yours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, but there's a guy named Jeff Sagansky who had actually been in college with me, who had gone to work at that studio. So I had a, a personal connection with one of the executives there. Mm-hmm. And uh, two things. They said to me, finally, as I, as, as I first worked with Kevin Jarrett, um, when they were... Uh, Considering doing it, I was involved with a producer named Freddie Fields, who's a very sort of legendary character um, for any number of reasons in Hollywood as a producer and then having created what is now ICM. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, we found out that there was going to be a reenactment of the 125th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg taking place on the field with the reenactors. And there were going to be thousands of men maybe three or 4,000 men on the field that day, July 4th, uh, 125 years after 1863, that would have been 63, you know, it was like 89, something like that. And we convinced them to give us $25,000 or $20,000, whatever it was, where I could go with a friend of mine who's a cameraman and another cameraman we picked up from New York and Freddie and me, to go onto that field and just shoot what it might look like. And I didn't know what I was going to see when I got there, but I read about these reenactors and we went there and we had to put on the union uniforms because we wouldn't let anybody on the field who wasn't actually in the Mm reenactment. But there we were running around as a hundred degrees in in Gettysburg in this midsummer. And we, we shot several thousand feet of film. And I brought it back to L.A. And Steve Rosenblum, who was not yet an editor, he was actually an assistant, um, but my my close friend, we um, took the film. And at night in the cutting room, when he was done with his day job, we snuck in there and we cut the film together and put it to music and put together about couldn't have been more than a five or six minute reel. But it was magic because it was the dust would come up and the horses would go through and these cannons would go off and, and, and there was no narrative. Right. But it was a sizzle. It was a sizzle. I, I, I invented the sizzle apparently. <laughs> apparently. Cause I was like, this is the most amazing sizzle I've ever heard of. <laughs> exactly. And so we did that. Um, and showed it to the studio. And the one thing the studios, um, are, 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 sub, are, are subject to, and this is, I think explains the sizzle. Um, which is, oh, well, we're incapable of imagining it, but if you show me something that is in fact there, maybe maybe that makes it make sense. I mean, I, I find the sizzle to be a little bit offensive when someone's taking my film and 10 other directors' films and saying that they've done it, but that's how it's gonna be because God help them if they could do it the same way. Um, uh, but, but that was one thing that happened and they looked at it and they went, wow, that's pretty great. They said to me, we will make this movie for a certain budget 
if you can get Matthew Broderick to agree to do it. Now, Matthew Broderick at that point had done Ferris Bueller, yeah. not exactly the most logical trans, uh, you know, uh, choice to play in this kind of movie. Right. But that began in a, a, a bit of a conversation with Matthew and, and um, some real hesitation he had about doing it and having to win him over to that idea. But the good news was they said, basically, if you could get Matthew Broderick to do it, then all the rest of those guys, you know, those, those black guys, you know, uh, well, you know, You'll you'll take care of that. <laughs> yes, just a couple guys. Whatever, whatever doesn't matter. Which which you know, amazing, amazing. It's an amazing story because I mean I had known Denzel because um, uh, the year before we had started thirty something and and, yeah. and and Denzel was, um, I think he was he was there still doing Sandy Elsewhere at the time. Right, the right, that's right. He did Sandy and Elsewhere. I, yeah. And I'd seen Morgan do something at BAM, and Andre Brower uh, was still a senior. Was still in. Uh, still in his final year at Juilliard. He had never done anything before. But it, it, it bespoke something that's, I think, also interesting to talk about, mm -hmm. which is that their approach to it was essentially as a white savior narrative. Yeah, right. And, and that's what they wanted the movie to be. And therefore, there was a lot of, um, a lot of pressure put on me uh, to really uh, lift up that character of Shaw and talk about his, how he was trained and where he was born and how he got there. And there was literally about two reels of film and, and really to put the burden of the narrative on him. And I had to, to write a lot of it. And in fact, as we started, I had to shoot a bunch of it. But it became abundantly clear that when I started rehearsing with um, the guys in the tent with Denzel and Andre and Morgan, and Jimmy, that there's that, that was the story uh, yeah. and the minute that we shot that first scene and looked at it in dailies or let me back up for a second when i looked at the stuff with matthew alone and it looked like a kind of bad movie for television because mm. it was arch and it was stilted and it was just something you'd seen before mm -hmm. but when i started realizing what these guys had it just all revealed itself to me. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I began to um, write more for them and figure out ways that there would be other scenes in which they would have figured even more prominently in the plot. And um, so that when I finally showed the movie to the studio, I cut the first two reels. I literally began with Matthew Broderick on that field and that letter. And he meets Morgan Freeman, you know, three minutes into the movie when he's lying there on the field and uh, starts meeting the other guys, you know, six minutes later. Mm -hmm. uh, and the movie became what it became, which is not to diminish anything that Matthew did or, or to t diminish um, his import. And, 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 and his performance. But these guys were in a state of grace. They were, they were representing something that I could only imagine or, 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 or humble myself in front of. Yeah. And, um, and, and from what I, you know, when I saw the film, uh, I mean, all I, all I can remember from, from the back of my head is Denzel just, it's just Denzel. I mean, I, yeah. Morgan and, and everybody else and Matthew was great, but it's just Denzel. You just saw, he became Denzel in Glory. 
Like he became. Yeah, well, he began a relationship with us where we made several more movies together. But, right. but, but one thing I will say also, and this is how I tried to make that transition, and I think this is really important to say. I know that about last night was, you know, people in rooms talking and 30 something, which had come right after at the reading home around the same time was the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I shot so much film, meaning in that movie and in those 40 episodes that had preceded this. Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of the directors that became really great directors who shot two reelers. You know, George Stevens, who had shot, you know, uh, Max Sennett and and uh, John Ford, who had shot, you know, crummy Westerns and, and all that shooting film, cutting film, doing it, figuring out what makes a scene work. Was, again, just about gaining a kind of felicity and 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 a kind of chops as a jazz. You know, trumpeter might mm -hmm. finger scales as a pianist might. Um, and one more thing, which is I went back to some of the masters that I had so loved. And I think I watched Ron and Kagamusha and the Seven Samurai a hundred times. Mm -hmm. Because what Kurosawa did with those movies, he did not have a lot of money and we didn't have a lot of money for glory. Mm -hmm. He showed me how to fill that frame and how to stage that in depth and how to give the impression of scale. Um, and I, you know, stole mercilessly from his technique, even though it was different, you know, uh, period and whatever. And I would have, I, I could afford, you know, four days in the movie where we had six or 700 extras or five days. Right. right. And I figured out how to space those shots when I needed them through the different aspects of the story. So that then when I only had 200 or even 100 and filled and inserted those shots into the bigger shots in your mind as, as the audience, you're there among the 700 or 2,000 of them. Because you have to remember, there was no CGI. None. That's all we in camera. Yeah. No, it's all in camera. We, yeah, we, couldn't, we couldn't duplicate and tile and do any of those things. That's amazing. Um now, moving forward in your in your career, I, I've noticed that you worked a lot of up and coming. Yeah, you've worked with a lot of up and coming um, actors, like from Denzel, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. Brad Pitt, um, Matt Damon, Encourage yep. Under Fire. You have a heck of an eye. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I thank you, and and I I do I am proud of that. And and by the way, I would include. Um, Claire Danes and oh, yeah. Kevin Rachel Wood in the in television mm -hmm. too. Um, I think it's it's it, it it frankly is that would go back to the theater and and having some confidence in my estimation of who an actor really is and who he is for that part as opposed to what his reputation might be or what other movies you might have seen. Um, I I would like to think that I would cast unknown actors as movie stars and i would try to cast movie stars as actors hmm. that, that trying to find some equalizing of the voice and and ask the same thing of both of them now how do you now how do you sculpt uh those remarkable performances because throughout your filmography i mean you have amazing actors obviously but but you in your films for specifically 
the, the performances are so sculpted. How do you work with them? How do you kind of come up with these from Leonardo and, and, and Blood Diamond to, to Tom and, and, and Last Samurai in these kind of films? Like their performances are so, there's depth to it. How do you sculpt a, a great performance? Um, I think it, it begins with a kind of trust that has to be earned. And I think that comes out of some set of conversations that begin, and they, they begin very early. Sometimes it's doing research together. Sometimes it's doing physical things. You know, Denzel and I, uh, I mean, the, the guys, even all of them in the tent, as they were learning how to, you know, load a musket and do drills with, with, the, with the reenactors, or Tom working with the sword, or or drinking Jägermeister with Leonardo, with guys who had been in the South African Defense Forces. Um, there's a, a, a building of, of vocabulary and, and trust that it's part of it. I think there's also a commitment to honesty about not bullshitting um, an actor or a movie star about what, what they're doing and not being the person whose job it is to suck their cock, but rather to, to really demand something of them. Right. Because you've done the work and, and, and the truth is they want to do the work. And, and I think obviously over time, when you've done a certain number of performances, actors might come there knowing that you might have some notion of what you're doing right. and, and how to get them there. But by the way, you evoke Nina mm -hmm. and, 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 and there's a very, very, good example of something that I might, things I might have heard her talk about when I was 22, that then when I found myself at 35 in these relationships with movie stars or 45, those, that's when a lot of that stuff came in handy because, you know, she had worked with Marty Clift and she had, um, you know, uh, understood that, 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 that actors and actresses were a very particular breed. And there are very specific kinds of issues that you could understand that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. and, and you could um, be sensitive to those. And then one other thing, I think, and that is maybe it's going to sound a little bit woo-woo, mm -hmm. but I think that directing kind of reckon that I believe there's a certain amount of exchange that happens, uh, a kind of my experience of the material first, say, as a writer, or even breaking it down just as a director of someone else's work, but that as I approach it, I want to understand the nature of the experience that the actor is going through. And when I go and talk to that actor, somewhere in me, I'm also communicating to him or her what I believe the nature of that experience to be. And it might be the tone of my voice. It might be a touch on the shoulder. It might be my posture. It might just be the intensity and the sweat. I don't know what it is, but I think that there is some willingness to go deep uh, and to understand where that actor wants to get to. And to create an ambience um, where that actor can be um, comfortable 
to discover something. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And to feel like they have the time to discover it. A lot of what you do as a director is try to, is anti-entropic, push away all the entropy of life, of noise and traffic and pressure and your watch and the, and, and, and the, is to give them at least the illusion that they have a safe space right. in which they can create. And, and something that I, that I talked a lot to Steven Soderbergh about when we worked together is creating a circumstance in which the default is truth, yeah. which is to say the script and what you're asking the actor to do is to not make some ridiculous transition in two lines, is not to have to give a long expository speech for no reason, to have a costume that feels right, to have a set that feels like it's real, to not ask them to not to stage things in a way as to be arbitrary for the camera, but to have let life in to that process. And as a director, however much I prep, there's no substitute for me sitting there and letting them play and experiment and discovering myself, even things I might not have known, because there is life happening in front of me. And if you can create enough of that, that the actor feels as if, as if they're cheating, right. as, as if there's just life happening. Right. Um, and, and, and by the way, when you read about it and you read about what the gift was suddenly of, of, of Kazan and Brando or, or James Dean or, 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 um, you know, different actors, that was the revolution. The revolution was, was bringing life onto the stage and, and in front of the screen that was not um, very different than the life we know it to be. It's just that life put into extreme circumstances. And I think, I think the two words that really sum up the performances I've seen in your films is depth and truth. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, there is that, there is just, there's substance. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not, it's not a veil, very thin performance um, with all of them because some actors, you know, movie stars, in some movies, they're Oscar caliber. Other, other times, you're just like, what happened? Um, and it happens with, and that happens with every artist in yeah. every, every field. But, yeah. but, but there's a consistency in your work. And that's why I wanted to ask you that question. Well, I mean, I think it's also, it's also who you're surrounding them with. Yeah. That's what right. are the, what's the nature of the words you're asking them to say? You know, I, I listen, I, I have found at times that the, the, the hero of a production has have been the, 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 the costume designer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yes. you know, uh, or, or the prop man, mm -hmm. um, yeah, or, uh, you know, the skinny knife that Brad has in Legends of the Fall that was like built and that somehow becomes this, this thing. And I, and, and obviously the, the DP who creates this universe, everybody, if you if you have those magnificent people, they are also um, creating this edifice on which the performance then can rest, but the edifice is already higher up and the performance is already lifted in some way. So it's, 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 it's about everybody else too. And of it's course. not just me. Um, I sometimes think that it's the hair and makeup people who are in the trailer who are the first people to see the, see the actor in the beginning of the day and the last people to see them at the end of the day that 
are as instrumental in in giving them that sort of confidence to to go out there like on a you know those uh, umbilical lines that the guys go out on a spacewalk mm-hmm. you know they're out there they're out there in zero g and you're back behind the camera with a cup of coffee but but they're out there and they have to feel like they're like they're being taken care of and supported now another another theme i've seen in your films is just the massive scale of, of many of your films it's just so many like very you know just very epic um mm-hmm. films from legends of the fall to last samurai to glory mm-hmm. how, as a director how do you work with such a massive um not only crew but just the thousands hundreds and thousands of people that might be in front of the lens sometimes how can you like because I, I look i have a you know when i'm directing i'm directing a scene or i'm directing a scene with four or five people in a room and you're just trying to keep hold of two or three cameras and making sure everyone's you know just trying to take the narrative how can you even grasp that mass you know, i know this this is going to sound um a little bit fatuous but I think it's just as hard to direct a scene with five people in a room as it is with 500. I think, you know, when you have 500, it's, it's about your canvas. What, what is on your palette? And, and in some odd way, there's more to photograph when there's 500 people out there. Right. There's, there, you can juxtapose, um, what's that, that Meyerhold phrase, neither, it can never be too close nor too far away. I mean, you have the, you have the long shot, you have the great scale, thing which then juxtaposes to a close-up you have you have a, a, a kind of um, palette that is exciting action certainly um particularly action where there is stakes that are emotional where you're not looking at action for its own sake but you're actually following the story and that action has a purpose with that story that you're telling with that individual actor or that set of actors um and part of it is a thing that I never thought I would be well suited for at all. Was having a certain amount of patience. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there have been there have been days when you arrive at five thirty in the morning, and then about five hours later, six hours later, the AD says, "Okay, that's lunch," and you haven't got a shot. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and 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 okay, and you know, you're getting re- and now it's three in the afternoon and you're convinced that you're going to get fired and you're going to have to lose shooting days. You have to, <laughs> you know, some confidence that you're going to then accomplish when you do those things, the things that you want, that you've got the number of cameras and that you've got the right shots and you've done a shot list. I mean, I'll, I, I don't do shot lists of people in rooms and talking and whatever, but on those things, you damn well better have your shot list because you're not coming back there you know, uh, with 500 extras the next day. Yeah. So like, it's, it's kind of like that old, um, that old, uh, story of John Ford on a script, you know, like the Indians take the fort, like it's literally <laughs> one line, but it's, it took two weeks to shoot. And I'm I, assuming once you move that machine to reset that machine, that's mm-hmm. another day almost sometimes. Uh, there's so many great stories about that. I won't bore you with them. There's, there's a great one about David Lean and they're yeah. setting up the, 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 um, the attack on Aqaba, you know, and mm-hmm. without the camera, without filming the cameras, and <laughs> and, and, and and there's um, what was I going to say? There was another thing that that reminded me of of, I you know, yeah, you just have to, um, that that that's a a real, that's about 
a kind of redundancy. I, I, I read a, um, ooh, now something really weird has happened to the visual on the frame. Okay, there we go. Um, I, um, I, there's a book that I read um, by Rick Atkinson called The Army at Dawn. He's a Washington Post reporter about, and it's about the Allied, it was part of a trilogy about World War II, and it's about the invasion of, of um, North Africa, which was an utter failure. And it's about all the preparations they had to do to create amphibious landings. Mm -hmm. well, they'd never done them before. What is an amphibious landing? Right. They had invent the amphibious craft and they had to understand about supplies and all this. And it was about the redundancy of checking and rechecking and having these endless meetings with all of the departments and making sure that everybody's on the same page and, and, and being honest about what you can and can't accomplish. And what they discovered when they did the landing is they got it all wrong, <laughs> but they never could have done D-Day if they hadn't fucked up so badly in North Africa. And so part of it is also making really stupid mistakes as long as you then don't make them twice. And that's pretty much filmmaking as a, as a, as a general statement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, one, th one part of, of filmmaking that is not really taught in schools very often um, and I know I've felt I've, I've had to deal with it. I'm sure you have to. Every director has ever had to deal with it is the inevitable politics of being on set, the mm -hmm. hierarchy dealing with the politics of actors or crew or studio or producers. Can you talk a little bit about how you as a director deal with those 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 politic moments, which when well, you have a group of people, it's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, you well, you've mentioned, you know. By those seven people you've mentioned, if you if you triangulate them, you've mentioned about 49 different relationships. So so or maybe more. So I can only I, I'd have to talk about them somewhat separately. Um, the, the one thing I would say is, is I have over time come up with a kind of um, an analog to what a film set is. And, 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 and because it's not a startup and it's not um, a team, it's not a business. It's this uh, group of people all coming together with a common goal, but the goal is ephemeral. The goal is a story. And I think of it a little bit like the, uh, the, sort of like the sailing ships in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. that everybody on that ship is a master. The ship's carpenter, mm -hmm. the sailmaker, the cook, the navigator. Everybody is really is an expert in what they do. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, and at the front of the ship, up in the, in, 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 the, in the prow of the ship, is some guy with a big, long beard blown back by the spray and the wind. And he's saying, I know the way, follow me. <laughs> but he doesn't really know the way. Right. He has an idea, but somebody's got to say that. And all the rest of them are probably capable of being that guy who's up there, but they don't want that gig. They're perfectly happy being in their own department, doing their thing as, as experts and also grumbling that the son of a bitch up there doesn't know what he's doing. But, but they're wonderful people. Right. And in my experience, film people on a set are funny as shit. Mm -hmm. They are capable of working in long hours, you know, inclement conditions with crummy food and 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 there's a love there 
and there's a commitment to this thing. And it's, it's romantic. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So generally, I find a crew to be just the best part of it uh, mm-hmm. or all of that. Now, when you fold in the actors who have their own little world and their own set of issues, um, they have to be that they have to be uh, dealt with in a very particular way, so as to be able to keep that to a certain degree and be able to have the focus and the concentration that they need. But you'll also find that if actors are not in gratitude for their opportunity or not aware of what's happening, they could lose a crew too. An actor could get a crew to do anything for them, or they could have a crew that's working against them. Mm-hmm. And it's often, a, it's often a, a factor of what their nature is. You know, a little bit of a little bit of sensitivity on their part, or kindness, or, or or awareness of what other people are going through goes a very long way, and and vice versa, um, because a crew could sabotage an actor just in some very subtle but very I think un- unhappy ways. But, and but, go ahead. No, and, and and I think the same goes for directors. Like if if you yeah. don't, I mean, I've I've had crews. I've yeah. seen. I've been on sets where the crews are completely against the director, you uh, bet. on e- either in uh, either in television because television is even rough, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, yep. But in a feature world, they come in, and if you just a little bit of kindness, saying hi to them, uh, saying thank you, um, oh, you yeah. know, oh, those little things, making sure that they th- that they're fed on time. These little little things go such a long way when you got, when you're at hour twelve. And you need them to go another 30 or 40 minutes. Totally, totally. And, and also, I, listen, I started, I was very young when I started really directing. I mean, I was maybe 26 when I was, and I would do some of these shows at Universal. Mm-hmm. And those guys, you know, they had been working for 35 years. They'd done <laughs> thousands of hours. Right. Um, and even when I started making movies, it became very clear to me that the dolly grip, I was making my third movie, so I'd shot six hours of film, and he shot 600. And when I would start to say, okay, now we're going to put the camera over, and by the time I point, he was already moving the dolly over to where the camera was going to be, because he knew. So so you know, the, the part of it was actually surrounding myself with people who really knew much more than I did, and trying to pay attention, and really ask you know, dumb questions and, and, and try to listen. Very absolutely. 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 When you, when you try to then factor into the executives and that whole dance, that's, that's a whole other story about, you know, yeah. That's another podcast. That's another podcast. It really is. is. (laughs) Now, um, (laughs) have you ever had to deal with an unprepared or difficult actor? And if you have, what do you, as a director, if it's a star, if it's a bit player, if it's if it's a secondary supporting character, how do you deal with that as an actor, as a director, to keep the engine going? Um, you know, I've dealt with actors who 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 were too anxious to do well, and that's something you deal with. But when you deal with an actor who's not prepared, who's drinking at lunch, uh. That's a bad scene, and I'm not sure I handled it very well. I'm not sure I even knew what to do because there's not much you can do. Um, I suppose if you're in the position to fire someone, you can. 
But you also know that when you fire someone, you're also hurting yourself because they're not going to necessarily say, oh, it's fine. We'll go back and reshoot all this and we'll give you all the time back. It'll inevitably hurt you in some way. Right. Um, uh, I think well, there, 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 it's, there, there are two things. One, there are a lot of us, I think, who are perfectly willing to call each other out of the blue. And I won't mention names of um, guys who called me, but I could tell you that I have presumed to pick up the phone and call another director and say, before I work with this guy, I've heard something. Just talk to me. Tell me honestly. Uh, this will never go any further. What am I looking at? What am I up against? Because that's a kind of honor among thieves. Yeah. That, that, that if, if they've had a bad experience, they don't want they don't want you to have a bad experience. Directors, ironically, are very are very supportive of each other. We may be competitive in some in, in some industry's mind as to who could do a better film, but any director who's been through it more than once or has a life in it has real compassion for for their peers. Mm -hmm. So I will call people and they will call me, and so that's one failsafe to avoid that thing happening. And only once have I been forced to use an actor that I didn't want to use, that I'd heard stuff about, and it almost ruined, I think it actually did really hurt the third act of one of my movies. And I will not mention who that is, but it was, it was bad. And I hated it. And I should have fought it harder. It was because the movie was going way over budget and they needed, they felt they needed another star and it was just a bad scene. So there was that. Um, but the other thing is try to, if there's a way that, you know, you're not going to get a movie star to read for you, <laughs> right? but you can, but you can try to spend time with them. And, and even though it seems awkward, really try to talk honestly and get the measure of who that person is. Cause people will tell you who they are. I mean, there's, if you really listen, when you, anybody in life, when you meet them, Mm -hmm. They want you to know who they are. And, and, and if you can get past your own anxiety or your, or your expectations, mm -hmm. you know, I need this person to be in my movie. Therefore I'm going to like him. Right. But in fact, what they're saying is crap or what they're saying is terrifying about, you know, their, their entitlement or their, uh, you know, pomposity or, you know, their ingratitude, things that really make you crazy. Uh, you, you end up, if you end up casting that person, then you get what you deserve. A Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very true. Now, in, in Last Samurai, which, by the way, Last Samurai is one of those movies that if it's on, it's a, it's a remote throwing kind of, throw away the remote kind of movie for me. Like it's, if it's on wherever it is in the movie, I just stop. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. And I'm in. It's one of those films for me. I absolutely adore it. I also am fascinated with samurai culture and right. samurai history. And I have an right. Akira Kurosawa autograph in the, in, in the, it's, it's on the wall in the back. I'm, I'm, I've got my samurai sword in the other room. I I'm in. I'm in. So that's why when I saw that trailer for the first time, I was right. amazed. Some, I mean, there's so many things in that movie that we could talk about, but the fight sequences in that film mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. so wonderful and, and so amazing. And I know Tom, from what I hear from other directors I've, I've talked to who've worked with them and also just the legend, 
He is a serious, committed, oh. professional actor, and he wants to do everything himself. Yeah, so, I mean, no, <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, there. Um, <laughs> I would say there is only one shot in that movie that Tom did not do. And that's when the horse that he's riding in the final charge takes a fall. Right. Right. Because, first of all, the insurance company would never let us do that. And I would never let him do it because the guys who did it were the, the gypsies from Spain, from Zingaro, the great horse circus, who were the greatest riders in the world and who had trained with those horses for four months before then. But he wanted so, to, but he wanted to do it. Oh, I'm sure. And by the way, he's riding in the charge. He's, I'll tell you what he's in. He's in the charge on the, on foot when the two armies come together and hit each other. Oh, he's in that shot. That. Doing that. But, but oh, um, what I remember is, is it was February. We didn't start shooting the movie till like September, October. So in February already, I remember he was renting a house someplace, um, on the west side and I there was a tennis court there and I went to go see him one night and it was foggy and cold and it was nine at night and I remember walking down to the tennis court and he is out there with a sword guy working out um and that's seven months before we shot the movie wow. and you know some of the learning Japanese and uh I mean you know, there was a great guy, a guy named Nick Powell, a very talented um, stunt guy uh, who was really good with sword. But I also found that a lot of the Japanese um, had their own, um, you know, uh, experts and they had shot a lot of samurai movies. <laughs> and, 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 and there were there were some guys on that. Uh, on that field, uh, there were 700 Japanese who came to live in New Zealand with us when we made that movie. Mm -hmm. They even created a village with our own doctors and, wow. and, and diet and whatever. But there were guys on, on on that field who had been in those Kurosawa movies. Jesus. So, um, and and there are certain guys in those battles who must probably who die about a hundred times. I think that it's. Just, <laughs> As good as good stunt people do, you just put another wig on them, get them yeah. out there again. <laughs> yeah, but but I do remember that literally it was a kind of ghoulish exercise, certainly in that final battle, mm. about saying, "Okay, okay, what's another way to kill someone? Oh, <laughs> how I, many I, ways are there that I could devise to kill someone?" Um, I'll tell you another interesting thing you'd probably like. We um, there's the scene when the, when the samurai first come out of the mist and they charge and they're they're on horseback and Tom on horseback. We 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 built an that's an animatronic horse. Mm -hmm. It was a million dollars to build a horse that is probably only in about 28 seconds of film. How is that? That doesn't make a lot of sense ROI wise. Like, there's not a really good return on investment, or is there? I mean, seriously. Well, it, well, it does because in the middle of this remarkable scene, you have your movie star doing things that you would never let a movie star do. Okay. A horse rearing, turning, 
sword bending, twisting, turning, and then getting T-boned by another horse and going over. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. You're absolutely right. There's no other way to do it. And you say to yourself, okay, this whole sequence is going to be uh, five minutes. And if you've got 30 seconds of that movie star doing that in the middle of it, it's probably worth it in a movie that cost $130 million. That million dollars was well spent. Yeah. Hard to prove, but true. I, that's amazing. So like, so that sequence, um, that fight sequence in the, um, in the back alley, the, the, when the samurai mm -hmm. surround Tom, mm -hmm. and the, the way you shot that and the way that the timing and the slow-mo and the way he, the, the way he was like the, the images, how do you approach a scene like that? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I I read a um I read a uh, a book by John McPhee talking about uh Arthur Ashe and I think it might have been Osuna playing a tennis match in the sixties. Mm -hmm. And it's a brilliant analysis of of sport, but also of competition. And I remember him trying trying to break down a tennis stroke into the composite motions of every um change of weight and 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 uh vision and timing and and that what the human brain might be capable of doing and understanding all at once when you see a player in hang time twisting and right. reversing the ball and then going the opposite alley I mean, since you know things that or 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 i once had a cat that i slow motioned dropping the cat from higher up, upside down, and seeing the cat come and find his feet with a kind of gyro ability that he would have. So the idea was to say, how would it be possible for someone? Because, you know, in samurai movies, when you see it, they're doing it, but it's very fast, mm -hmm. and you're taking it on faith that that's how it would have been. But I said to myself, okay, is there a way that we could literally break it down and see it and and do it in the reverse usually what you do in, in action or at least what i've seen before with action is some action starts and it immediately goes into slow motion right, right. And, and that's how it happens and i said to myself well, what happens if we um do it and then find a way to then go backwards and almost like that that you know he's been training right that's that's why this and, makes so much sense and when you're and when you're training it, you know you train and you train and you train and they try to say to you and the whole theory of that was which is what coaches used to say to me well if you did well oh man you were playing out of your mind yeah if you're playing out of your mind what does that mean the it zone. means you're only, you're only reacting right so to first show him playing out of his mind, almost being unaware of what he had done, and then go back and almost to recapitulate it in that penultimate moment that leads up to the last moment. That was the whole theory. But Tom, I will say, does every, and the, those guys are swinging, they're not, they're not sharpened swords, but if one of those swords oh. would have hit him in the face, mm -mm. Or or in the arm, that would have been you know the if not the end of a career, it would be the end of a couple of weeks of shooting. <laughs> so so 
imagine the amount of time that he spent rehearsing that with those guys to do that. Wow. You do yeah. it all in one. It's done all. I wanted to show it all in one take first. Yeah, and, and that and the reason why all of that works so beautifully is because it works into his character. And that's what I love about that action sequence. It is a, it is a statement about what the character has gone through. Yeah. It is not just an action sequence to look cool, which is fine, and there's those those stories in those films. But in this, your action sequence are actually telling is a is a storytelling aspect. It's not just look how cool yeah. I can swing a sword. It's, yeah, I mean, look I, how far I, I've I come. believe. I'm not interested in action for its own sake. I mean, I like it sometimes, but it's just not who I am. I, 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 if there's a reason, if something is accomplished narratively in it, um, then there's a reason for it to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a by design. Uh, it's great if you can reveal anything through behavior mm -hmm. rather than through exposition. And in this case, um, it, it, it literally, begins with that first scene with um, the character playing Ujo, um, Hiroyuki Sanada, when Cruz refuses to, to, to lie down. And you see him picking up and <laughs> oh. he's training with that stick. Oh, you know, so good. But it's a progression. And even that scene, by the way, which we did in the rain, mm -hmm. which made it much more dangerous for, for him. Yeah. Um, Sanada happens to be a, a, a master. Um, but the, to have slipped, if one of them slips at that moment in that wet slot mud, that's just, you know, right out. So it is. Yeah, it is. Again, and, and if anyone listening has not watched Last Samurai, I mean, please do yourself a favor and watch it because the action sequence is the story. I mean, I cry at the I mean, you're, you're you're just tearing at the end of that. It's just so emotional and so well done. Um, and then you go to, to something like Blood Diamond. Which is again another dis. I mean, it's not a war movie per se, but it is a war movie. Per you know, there is definitely elements in that, um, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you. There is something I've I've noticed in your filmography as well. Is there's a theme? A lot of the of the stories you tackle are deal with war, and even even Pawn Sacrifice about mm -hmm. Bobby Fischer is a internal and external war of one character. So what draws you to that kind of material? Because it started way, way early with Glory. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I don't know. <laughs> because, I mean, you, you do see, you see the pattern, right? You see yeah, the pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not the first dramatist to realize that that in those extreme circumstances, you can find great story. And you, you got to go back to, you know, let's start with Homer, right? Right, right. And, 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 and the Iliad is a pretty good one. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. And, it's okay. It's and, okay. And, and, it, it wouldn't have and, a good box office opening. I'm just going right. to say. <laughs> and Shakespeare did okay right. with, uh, with several different wars. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, in those moments, obviously, things are simplified. Yeah, uh, the, the the nuance of 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 I, I had done plenty of ambiguity and ambivalence when I was doing thirty something and doing little, you know, um, modern, you know, behavioral comedy, but with this, there's an opportunity to juxtapose that kind of emotionality that's at the same. It's not strange to see that at the same pitch because that's the world that it's in. 
the outside, the external reality matches the internal reality there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem stupid um, uh, for that to be at a certain depth of, of intensity. Now, The Siege, which is, uh, by the way, one of my wife's and mine's favorite films, which is, she, she adores that film. Oh, um, it, she's the one thing I want to ask you there. It, it's an eerie omen to nine 11. Like you did that in before nine 11. How, yeah. how did you come up with that story? Because I, I mean, I imagine when you, you know, when you experienced nine 11, you're like, Oh my, Oh my God. I mean, it's yeah. well, obviously that certainly was a, but comparing it to your, to your story and to your film, you're like, yeah. Oh my God, this is wow. Well, I would say, I mean, two things. One is that I, I was reading a lot about Europe and what Europe was going through with terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I have a, a number of friends um, who uh, went into government and whom I could talk to right. about what they anticipated. Uh, because a lot of times what seems uh, like it's happening someplace else is inevitably going to happen here. And I, you know, and, 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 and that only gets faster and faster. We look no further even than the pandemic, you know, which, oh, that's going to be just over there. No, <laughs> yeah. it is, it is one world in that regard. And, and so I guess I was, um, paying attention. I wasn't prognosticating. I was trying to pay attention to what was happening in the world. And, and I just felt that that was coming here. And by the way, the guy, Two people helped me on that script very closely. The first was Larry Wright, mm -hmm. Larry Wright, who then wrote um, The Looming Tower. He's one of the greatest journalists of our day. And he wrote this book uh, uh, about the pandemic um, a year ago before this all happened. He's a, an amazing journalist who was paying great attention. And the other is Men Omeas, um, who's a, a, a friend and a great writer. He was actually, I think he wrote... Um, a couple of the Indiana Jones movies and, and he's a politically very savvy guy. So it was, you know, I had help mm -hmm. and I also had help by talking to people from the, the, the FBI CIA counterintelligence task force task force and, and talking to, um, uh, people who were, you know, um, experts in the field of, uh, hostage negotiations. And, right. and, and at every stage, you know, if you're, I mean, I did have some experience at the very beginning of my life as a journalist, and I still have held on to the, the understanding that there's no substitute for talking to people who know what they're talking about, especially if you bring a movie star with you. <laughs> that always helps is what you're saying. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> now you, um... I mean, the, I would, I would be there with the CIA with Annette Benning. And, 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 and what they would have stonewalled me. And the minute she walked in, it was like, oh, wait, let me show you this secret document from the, it's like, what? do you want to know who shot JFK? Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, never underestimate the power of the star power of uh, movie stars <laughs> and trying to get anything done in this town in general. That's right. Now, um, you, you have been, uh, you've been a writer from for uh, most of your career, actually, I guess I would say most of your career, you've always been writing, um, yeah. and, and you write most of your work, uh, that you direct. Um, and then also you write scripts that are, 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 that are not something that you direct. 
Um, what is your writing process like? How do you get into it? Because arguably directing 500 horses taking a hill is probably easier than looking at a blank page. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I mean, <laughs> I know that when I'm writing, I'd sure rather be out on the set with 500 horses. But I conversely, when I'm out there with 500 horses, I sure as shit would like to be back someplace else writing. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's always that. <laughs> yeah. So. But what is, so what is, is your process, do you start with character? Do you start with plot? Is it, do you like, what is that process for you? Mm. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, I, I mean, sometimes there are simple things. I know when I, when I started writing Blood Diamond, uh, I, uh, Chuck Levitt had written a very interesting script that really didn't have much to do with what we were doing, but it was set in the time of, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the conflict diamond, uh, yeah. uh, you know, moment. And, uh, but I kept thinking and thinking about what the story would be. And I was reading a lot of books and reading a lot of articles and talking to people, whatever. And I came up with a phrase and the phrase was the child is the diamond. Mm. And I, and I put that on my, like on a post-it note. And if you think about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the Solomon Vandy character is looking for his son. Um, uh, Leo is looking for the stone. Uh, Jenny Connolly is looking for the story. And somehow the idea that they each had these goals um, were, started it all spinning in my mind as to as to how one could it's sort of a john houston um uh sort of plot really where these different people have these different agendas and they come together and and apart um I, that's conceptual and, and part of it is conceptual i think certainly for samurai i know marshall and i um and john logan we got because john logan and i did the first drafts together mm -hmm. um, uh the idea that a man would end up turning against everything that he has been trained to do and believe in and fighting to the death for it right. is a concept. Yes. How does that man get from that place to that place? And then we talked a lot about samurai culture. We talked a lot about Zen. Um, so that's part of it. But the other part, I know it's going to sound, it's kind of sounds kind of hokey, but What's a movie that I really want to see that nobody else is making? Okay. Can I entertain myself? Can I, can I <laughs> give myself the experience of doing this kind of doing this movie? Because while you write a movie, you are living it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, maybe the best performance of it is the one that nobody sees. It's the one that only you have been able to imagine and see in your mind. Uh, because it's inevitably going to be reduced by, compromise of money and time and performances right and I, is there any way that i can uh, you know just sort of reimagine my experience of being a kid in the movies or, or that person at the cinematheque at 22 years old mm -hmm. just just being um you know hypnotized by by a thing that that really interests me fair fair enough and that leads me to the next question. What drives you as a storyteller? 
Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, look, uh, you early in this conversation, you used the word calling. Yes. Right? So I'll throw it back at you and I'll say, I'll say, I think that there is purpose and I think there is value in trying to hold a mirror up to our society. I think the storyteller had a role in the primordial cave, cave trying to explain to everybody why that saber-toothed tiger came and took that child away that day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Or what that eclipse meant. You know, that we've, we've, we've had a role and it may be just to make people laugh and it may be to, to um, deal with their fears uh, or it may be even to explain their own ambivalences or, or to give them language for something that they, they don't have. But, but there's, there is something of a ministry in it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that the reason that certain movies are memorable and others are forgettable is that the movies that are memorable somehow dig into those personal um, secrets and, and uh, internal workings uh, of the mind and of the heart that, that people want to explore and they want a cathart. Mm-hmm. I, I, that, and when we weep um, in movies, we are weeping for ourselves. We are weeping for those characters, but we're weeping for the parts of ourselves that identify with those people in that moment that have something of them or have experienced something or will experience. I had a, I had a conversation with James Newton Howard yesterday um, who is a, some wonderful composer with whom I've done several films. And he said, you know, people say they, 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 they make movies um, because they want to explore something they've experienced. He said, I write music to experience something that I've never felt. Right. And that was so beautiful to me. It, yeah. it, it, it's very honest. And, he, and I, I want to have an experience. And, and, and then I want to offer it to, to other people. And that's a whole other way of sort of turning it around. Um, Fair enough. Now, yeah. I'm going I'm to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Um, okay. If you could go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would that be? Mm, be, be bolder. <laughs> take more chances? <laughs> take, take more chances. You'll be okay. It's okay. You'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be so scared. Yeah, I yeah. I'll I'll agree I'll agree with you with that. I I feel like my 20s were a complete waste personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, um what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Well, I mean, it's kind of remarkable in that, you know, with a with a consumer HD camera and and Avid for Mac and uh, you know, uh, some you, know, you you could make Anybody can make movies now. I mean, I saw you actually had Sean Baker on your show once before. Yeah. yeah. And, and and his first movie and even his second. I mean, you 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 know, uh he, I think that it's not nearly so much about technology as it is actually um coming to understand 
why you have any notion of telling a story. You know, what is it? I, I, I've never. Yes, there's a whole world of people that that make movies because that's cool and that's a comic book and sure, God bless them and, and it's fine. It just, it just, it just does not, you know, my jam. I, um, but, but you've got to have something to say. You've got to. Um, I, I, I would say. For a filmmaker, it's not just to look at other films, but to try to look at life and to read books about psychology and politics and uh, science. And I, I think it's curiosity for the world about how people behave and how the world behaves. Um, I just don't think it's about trying to figure out where to put the camera or <laughs> or, or you'll you'll be. Uh, that was, by the way, and going all the way back, what, what I watched with Woody Allen when I first was 21 years old, he didn't know any of that stuff. There were people, I realized he was a writer who had something he wanted to say, and some of it was funny and some of it was emotional, but he had people who could help him learn that. And he learned it. Mm -hmm. And I learned it too. But I'd like to think that there were things that I was interested in beyond the process of making the film. I love the making of the film, and we've talked about that today, even. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it's delicious, but it's actually what what what's going to give a film some kind of substance is um, something in it, something worth saying. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say that when I was really young and beginning, certainly in the, in the industry, that I thought that I was making movies so as to get something else, was to get fame or money or sex mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a, and some, some validation that I didn't get in childhood. Um, and, and so, so, so my process was fraught. My process was contorted to some degree. And eventually, and it took a while, I realized that, oh, actually it was the doing of it that was the gift. I made movies because I really liked doing it. I did it for the joy of it and, and, and the reward, it's not the credits on IMDb. It's not anything because they're all going to be forgotten. Like everything is forgotten. It's, it's, it, it's the, the reward is the, those relationships and the memories of, of the struggle and, and uh, the, 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 the defeats and the triumphs. But to have had the experiences, that is, that is the thing that, um, that I have learned. I, and and uh, what you've just said is so so, so profound that I just want to touch on it for a second because as, as filmmakers, because I, I deal with independent filmmakers on a daily basis and I've spoken to many over the years. Um, and there is, I mean, to be a director in many ways, there is, there has to be some sort of ego there to be able to say, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this. 
Yep. But a lot of them get caught up in the whole awards or my legacy or what I'm going to leave behind or 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 then, of course, the more shadow things like rich, famous, um, sex, uh, drugs, money, whatever, whatever that is. Um, but if you look, if you start to study history, you know, most filmmakers today, most people who really can name one Orson Welles film can maybe name one or two John Ford films, unless you're a real cinephile can go in there. And at the end of the day, you know, no matter how many Oscars you've won, no matter how many awards you've gotten, what you said is so profound because it's about the experience. It's about the relationship. It's about living life. It's about going through all that. And it's not about the awards. It's not about the money. If you can make some money along the way and win a couple of awards along the way, great. But it doesn't mean anything. It's more about that experience. Would you agree? Think of the privilege of being an artist. Oh God, yes. You know, I, and and by the way, it's 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 maybe pretentious to even use that word in film because it's a film business, and so you're an artist businessman. But whatever you are, sure. it's a privilege that rather than punching a time clock or um, doing something that I despised so as to get a pension or or, or yeah. that I I have gotten up every morning just excited, yeah, uh, what that day might hold. I've been given the privilege of, of exploring my imagination and my fears or my fetishes or my um, anxieties or my desires and been overpaid for it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, really wildly over rewarded for it and given some sort, sort of validation. I can't begin to describe um it's it's that there's that commercial where it says oh this thing is valuable this thing is you know um, <laughs> right 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 what uh, invaluable whatever but no I mean that 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 is it 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 is it, it is this astonishing privilege and to have been in a relationship with really great brilliant people artists themselves really you know passionate people who care about what they're doing. You can't even um, can't even estimate its value. And last question: three of your favorite films of all time. Oh my God! <laughs> well, I, I named I already named you know six Kurosawa movies, so you could take any one of those as one. And it, as fair enough, fair enough. Um, I'll allow I'll allow that to you. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. Uh, I guess I have this movie that I, that I really love. Um, yeah, it's by Ettore Scola, Tante Demani. We we all loved each other so very much. Okay, it's an Ettore Scola. It's an Italian movie that I really really love. It's going to be such a hokey thing to talk about, you know, to talk about, you know, the the Godfather one and two. I mean, I <laughs> sure. You say you throw the remote away. Uh, <laughs> that's a re that's a remote thrower away. I hope that I, if that movie's on and it's eleven at night, I'm going to be up till two. <laughs> you know, it's just. Uh, I was so. thinking, I was seeing an interview with Tom Hanks once. And he's like, all things can be, all answers are in The Godfather. Like, if you have a question about life, it's you, true. Leave, take, leave the gun, take the cannoli. That's yeah. profound. <laughs> and by the way. And 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 in in and anything you want to know about 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 film about directing mm -hmm. is in the Last Samurai. It's mm -hmm. 
narrative, action, characterization, humor, pace, uh, it's all there too. Staging. So yeah. th that's if you had one on a desert island, it would be that one. If you want to learn to go to film school, it would be that one. Now, I, I absolutely will agree with you. Edward, it has been an honor and a privilege uh, to it's talk. And, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, it's really, really been great. Um, thank you for your time, and I truly appreciate it. All right. Well, I, I really enjoyed it, too. And, and best of luck with your, with your show. I want to thank Edward so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs and sharing his experiences in the film business and hopefully sprinkling a little inspiration to keep the tribe going and following their dreams. Thank you again so much, Edward. Now, if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 112. And if you haven't already, please head over to IFH Academy and check out the Heart Chart Screenwriting Masterclass taught by legendary screenwriter James V. Hart, who wrote Hook, Dracula, and Contact, just to name a few. If you want to get access to that course, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash heart chart. That's H-A-R-T chart. Thank you again for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 